Welcome to the Healthcare Excellence Through Technology podcast. Designed by the healthcare industry for the healthcare industry, subscribe to stay up to date with the latest in digital health developments to help you on your digital transformation journey. Hello everyone, I'm Emma Fell, Head of Content here at HET, and welcome to another talk supporting digital transformation from Healthcare Excellence through Technology. Today's talk will be on the seismic shifts in management of patient data, considering best practice for right now and planning for the new normal. Today our expert speakers will be unpacking the current state of play and where we are now, which is in a nutshell a more digitally advanced healthcare service with barriers lifted due to necessity, but what have we proven is achievable and where have we left to go? We'll be looking at some of the different cultural approaches to data and remote working, considering the differences in primary, secondary and social care, and how this might impact the way we integrate data, as well as looking at the opportunities and challenges we now have to achieve that connected ecosystem. We have a stellar group of expert speakers for you today, all who have excellent track records in supporting better ways of working with patient data. Our first speaker, who is also our moderator, is Lisa Emery, who is a member of the HET Steering Committee, she has been the CIO at the Royal Marsden since 2018, overseeing a comprehensive program of digital transformation. Previously, she was CIO at West Hertfordshire Hospitals NHS Trust from 2014. And prior to these roles, Lisa spent a number of years in healthcare IT, including on the National Programme for IT in London. Our second panelist today is Luke Friedman, Regional Director of Digital Transformation for NHS London and Interopen Co-Chair. Luke has considerable experience of leading change at the system and institutional level and at the NHS academic, NHS and industry and NHS interfaces with a strong commitment to innovation and knowledge transfer. Also joining us today is uh, Dr. Natalie Banner, who leads Understanding Patient Data, an initiative hosted at Welcome to ensure uses of data for care and research are visible, understandable and trustworthy. UPD works with patients, charities, researchers and health professionals to champion responsible uses of data feeding into policy development, creating accessible resources and horizon scanning for emerging issues that may affect public confidence in the use of health data. This includes exploring how to create trustworthy frameworks for developing data-driven technologies in healthcare and research. We are also very pleased to welcome today Karen Kirkham, who is a Senior Clinical Advisor, Primary Care Transformation Programme at NHS England and Improvement. Karen also is clinical lead and assistant clinical chair with Dorset CCG and has a national role as senior medical advisor to the primary care provider transformation team. Karen has been a GP for over 25 years, now a senior partner. She combines all of this with her senior leadership role at Dorset's ICS. Finally, we welcome Aidan Pepin, a researcher at the Ada Lovelace Institute, which is an independent research and deliberative body with a mission to ensure data and AI work for people and society. He leads projects to address societal impacts of technology across a range of sectors, from health and biometrics to data governance. Currently, his work addresses technology and health inequality during the COVID pandemic and the social and ethical issues of, non, of using non-clinical data in health. A very warm welcome to all of our speakers for taking the time out to both prep and to join us today. We'll, we'll be starting the webinar soon. Um, please note that our speakers will be answering your live questions at the end of their discussion, so make sure to add any and all questions you have to the Q&A function and not to the chat function, where there will be opportunities to vote up the questions you like. We'll get to as many as we can, um, and I'm now going to pause, pause over to Lisa. Thank you. Hi, thanks very much for that, Emma, and, and welcome to all the panellists as well. Um, so I thought I'd start us off, really, with the um, broader question that um, Emma posed at the start. So 
If we look um, specifically at the barriers that have been lifted um, due to necessity, so the work we've all um, been doing in the last 10 weeks or so in response to the pandemic, and thinking about how the way that we've um, done these things has impacted not only how we work now, but also what we will, how we'll work going forward and how we'll manage patient data within that as well going forward. Um, so I wanted to start, if that's okay, really, with a view from, from Karen and then Luke and bring in, bringing in then Natalie and Aidan as well. So Karen, love to hear your perspective on that. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you um, all. Um, so, um, wow, in the last 10 weeks, I think we've achieved more than we could have ever imagined in terms of the pace and scale and agility and ability of systems to change. Um, so we've we've gone from a standing start uh, to uh, you know uh, from a ninety percent face to face consultation to nine over ninety percent digital and remote consultation. And uh, where, when my team were were thinking about what was the role of primary care, particularly in primary care networks and, and as part of a wider system. And we talked about uh, the role of digital and remote consultations as part of that. I don't think that any of us would have ever imagined um, what has happened to us in, in, in the last eight to 10 weeks. So it's been an incredible um, turnaround, um, driven by, of course, necessity and need, driven by principles of infection prevention and control, um, driven by the need to protect patients and staff. Um, and, uh, and I think for me, it's just shown responsive um, primary and secondary community mental health services wherever where you look and and also would include social care and the local authorities responsibility in this has just been a, a, a kind of a magnificent coming together with an agility and speed um, and, and embracing new technologies that many people are really not not thinking that would they would have to do in, in their kind of working lifetime has been achieved so we, we've gone to you know a kind of digital first remote where possible, uh, using digital technology um, in, a, in a way that we would never have thought possible. We're, we're trying to design now care by working without waiting rooms. That, that's the phrase that I'm really thinking about how, because that describes really well the metaphor about how we provide care going uh, in the future. Um, and thinking about how we can embed that across not just COVID related illness, but um, business as usual, uh, and I have a, a, a big aim, really, that we don't uh, increase any health inequalities as a result of what we do. We need to be really careful about the way that we transform and the digital agenda doesn't actually drive um, drive inequalities in a, in a greater way. Um, so, so that's what we've achieved. And, and I, that's not just in primary care. That's, that's across our health and care sector. I think the second thing for me that we've seen is um, a real drive for integration um, across all sectors around the patient. So really putting patients at the heart of all we do, but gives us an opportunity to start really um, pushing the personalization agenda for the, again, for safety of, of patient and, uh, and staff as well, but really planning care, really thinking about how we do things differently and really empowering patients to start to manage conditions in a way that um, moves away from the very traditional medical model and into much more of a biopsychosocial model with prevention and patients being empowered um, to be able to manage their own conditions going forward. So it feels to me that it's been a very, very difficult time for all of us, um, but it's a time of great change and great opportunity uh, for us to, to work together on this. 
That's, that's really interesting. Isn't it? Just picking up on something you there, um, some, certainly some of the discussions we've been having, um, it's almost like the word outpatients is now being banned in our, in our organisation. So thinking very differently um, as, you, as you responded to there around care without waiting rooms and just a very different way of looking at things, that, that really resonates actually. So yeah, interesting points there. Um, Luke, across to yourself. Yes, thanks very much and hello everybody and, and thanks for inviting me um, to this uh, seminar. I think there are four things I would just uh, bring to your attention. Um, the first is, you know, um, the NHS declared a level four emergency in March and we had lockdown on Monday, March the 23rd. What that meant was we changed the way we organise ourselves. So the normal governance and arrangements um, were changed to a set of instinct and command structures. Uh, in addition to which, particularly for data sharing, we had an additional provision around, co around COVID-related sharing of data, which meant some of the information governance uh, was made a little easier. So I think with that change in the sort of um, normal governance to more of a command structure, I think we all feel that COVID has aligned us horizontally and vertically in a way which means we've made some decisions quite quickly that may have taken us months and years to make previously. Um, and so that focus um, in the system on one problem has been of great benefit because clearly the lessons we have learned then become generally applicable rather than just specifically applicable to the COVID use case. As a result of that then, um, uh, interactions with patients and um, healthcare um, have changed very significantly. So a lot of that is now being done remotely, whether it's by telephone or video or asynchronous mechanisms. We've, we've delivered huge amounts of hardware across the system to support and enable that. We've also learned that social care, whether it's through care homes or, or other sectors, needs to be brought much more fully into the normal day-to-day -day thinking of the work we do. And that has been a gap, and it remains a gap, but it's high on the agenda, and I hope it doesn't change. I think the last thing for me is, and you see this in the daily um, announcements through number 10, that data is now an integral part of the work we do and that we're much more moving towards what I would describe as a learning health and care system so that as we know what happened yesterday and in recent times, we can modify our behaviours and strategies going forward and respond to that very quickly. So we're sort of trying to close that learning cycle very quickly now. And yet, much of the data that we're collecting that appears in those daily announcements is collected manually at the coalface. And we've got to change that. This has got to become a proper byproduct of the care we deliver so that data is available routinely to patients themselves, clinicians, and those service managers and planners and researchers. And that is a big gap. So I think there are some great lessons, some great achievements across the whole system. Fundamentally though, it's because we have organized ourselves around a single problem that we get ourselves to this point. You're on pause, uh, mute, Lisa. <laughs> that's certainly been that's certainly been my observation as well. And I, you know, I had a, a really nice comment from one of our clinicians the other day who said, "You know, this we've coalesced around a problem. We came up with some sensible solutions, implemented them. Can we always do change like this, please?" And I think that's a great comment. But you're, you're absolutely right, Luke. There are so many elements to that, and so many things we need to to do, and 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 still a lot of scrabbling with that manual data capture um, that we need to address as well. So no, thanks Luke, really interesting points there. Um, coming across to, to yourself, Natalie, um, 
obviously, you know, it's, it's very interesting and, and incredibly important to think about how we advocate for the voice of the patient in this and the considerations we should be looking at um, as we have these discussions. So be interested in your views on, on, on this. Thanks very much, Lisa. And yeah, you know, just to just to sort of pick up really from where from where Luke left off, um, if we sort of zoom out and think about the bigger picture about you know, everything that's been achieved, the changes in practice, what we what we're able to know and understand now that we couldn't even a couple of months ago, um, it, one of the first things that jumps out is really that the data that we're collecting is not neutral. It is always value laden. Uh, what is collected, what questions we ask, what kinds of questions we're able to answer, and importantly, what's left out. All of this is determined by values and interests and motivations of those who are collecting, managing and using the data. And that's not always a conscious thing. Um, and so it feels really, really important to highlight that, you know, we can't treat data as this sort of objective thing. Uh, and actually, there, there is always going to be questions around what's in, what's out, what's counted and what isn't. And actually, one of the things we're learning, I think, is that an awful lot is missing from routinely collected data. So, for example, um, the Open Safely study, uh, which was published last week, which linked together about 17 million uh, primary and hospital care records, um, study conducted by Ben Goldacre's team in Oxford, on that enormous, very, very rich study, over 26% of ethnicity labels were missing. So, you know, a huge number of people just didn't have ethnicity recorded. And considering that this is a pandemic that appears to be having disproportionate impacts on people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, that kind of missingness in data is going to have real impacts and real implications. And the same thing as Luke mentioned, data on social care. We don't necessarily have uh, the right data. It's not necessarily linked up and integrated in the right way um, to be able to understand uh, what the connections are between, uh, between primary care, secondary care, hospitals, so, uh, care homes and so on. So the impact of it is really, really stark. Perhaps it's something of a wake up call around the data that we're collecting uh, and what and how. Uh, the other point I want to mention is that, you know, as Luke said, that the shift has really been driven by this sort of sense of a single goal or single vision. Everyone is unified around it. It hasn't actually been driven by new tech solutions necessarily. I think sometimes in the data space, we can often get swayed by this idea that there is some technical answer to some of the questions that we're, that we're asking. But actually, tech solution isn't, isn't really the, the way forward. It's, it's about culture. It's fundamentally about people. Um, and, and, and those are the things that we need to focus on and not get kind of carried away with the technology and I think these perspectives are really reflected in, in work that we've done uh, and research that we've done that I'll happily talk about a little bit more later uh, with patients and the public exploring their views their attitudes their concerns and their questions um, that actually you know that the technology has to be serving a public benefit and a public interest and that is the kind of primary uh, driver and motivation and people are very excited about the idea of you know, using data more and better if that public benefit piece is front and center and is the most important thing um, to be you know, to, to be prioritized so for me the two key things are that it's not necessarily needing to be led by novel new whizzy exciting shiny technology uh, and secondly we have to be conscious about what's missing and who's missing from the conversations uh, and, and quite often you know from from work on, on patient and public engagement and attitudes research there are people missing from these conversations and whose views and perspectives just aren't included because we're not collecting the data we're not necessarily conscious that that data is missing so for all the brilliant achievements and there have been a lot of brilliant achievements I'm certainly not underplaying that um, we should always take a little step back and think what's missing what have we not got information on before we start making um, sort of further and long-lasting decisions um, on data collection management and use thanks
That's really helpful. Thank you. Great. Well, I'm sure we'll come back to a number of those points actually as we go through. Um, Aidan, what would you like to add to on this section? Thanks. Yeah, and, and and again, thanks very much for having me as part of the panel. And um, I think I probably pick up on some of the points Natalie's made there around um, the kind of types of data we're collecting and, and, and I think what has been really highlighted in the past few weeks is how what we're thinking about as health data and what kinds of data we want to collect is a rapidly growing and expanding category and so I think two months ago whether or not you were an individual who could work from home was probably not the kind of thing that was as important as it is now um, and it's not necessarily a new phenomenon and, and you know the, the types of data we can and do collect about our health have been rapidly expanding for years and the ways that we can collect that data are also rapidly expanding not just because we have more and more kinds of wearable technologies and apps and things but because you know um, data and analytics in the healthcare system and in healthcare research has been rapidly improving and this is obviously fantastic you know the more data that we can gather and collect about all the different factors which underpin our health the more we can understand and manage and treat our health and the more that um, you know, patients can have access to the data, the more they can feel em empowered to manage their own health. But there's this other kind of aspect around kind of power and trust in that um, there are a number of non-NHS actors involved in this, whether they're providing data services or whether they're developing technologies. Um, and that does raise questions about, um, you know, how they're involved. Um, you know, there's this question of trust. Not, not everyone is as trustworthy um, or as, a, as trusting, sorry, of non-NHS actors in this space. Um, and so you've kind of got this tension because, um, there are untold benefits of kind of bringing the power of new technology and new data analytics and collecting types of data that the NHS can use to help tackle this current pandemic, but also just generally in, in, in managing everyone's health and care. Um, but these companies that are involved, whatever the details are, they're simply not always as trusted as the NHS. People don't, they don't have the same accountability to the public because they're not publicly owned, they're not a public body. And people are very skeptical of these organizations. People are very skeptical when kind of big data, big tech are brought into the conversation. And it's not that that this is inherently bad in any way. Like I say, you know, this can be used to improve health um, considerably, but it just raises these kinds of questions about how patients may feel about the use of their data in this kind of brave new world and, and rapidly changing ways of collecting and using data and I think it does remain to be seen what the consequences will be from the sort of fantastic innovation that, that has been happening um, but I think the crucial thing as, as others have said already is that we ensure that patients are empowered by this um, and that the ways that we collect and gather data in new ways um, is, is done so that patients still have the ultimate say on what kinds of data collection and use is okay, uh, what they see is trustworthy, what they see is responsible, and that ultimately they are put first in, in all of this. Thanks, Aidan. That's, yeah, re really important points to pick up on there, and, and certainly what I've been he hearing as well in conversations um, it, with patients within the organisation, but also, you know, the conversations you have around the Zoom coffee table, as it were, with relatives and, and friends at this time as well. It's, you know, the, the topic on everyone's lips, really, isn't it, understandably? Um, okay, so if, if that's okay with everybody, I'm going to move us on to um, talking a little bit more and I'll probably um, pull across to Luke and Karen on this one and then ask um, Aidan and Natalie to join as well. So thinking about um, the different ways of working in, and more thinking about integration and collaboration, um, what do we see as differences um, both culturally and in the approaches to data and remote working across primary, secondary and social care um, and into the community? 
And then also, you know, what is it that we think we ought to be doing and we need to do to take forward to make sure we've got a connected ecosystem going forward? And, and I think as well, is there anything actually that, you know, we, we talk about what we've done and that's all fantastic, but is there anything we need to, we need to think about potentially undoing or, or doing slightly differently? So perhaps Luke, if I turn to you first for some comments on that and then over to Karen. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, uh, Lisa. So um, if I talk a little bit about the London experience, which is that for the last couple of years, you know, we've been working hard to connect London so that um, a healthcare professional can uh, see um, uh, the whole of a patient's journey in the context of our record, so sharing data at the point of care, really. Um, um, we had made good progress in that, but the, 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 the pandemic and the focus on this meant, particularly because early on we were bringing the Nightingale on, on in London, the, um, you know, the, the extra intensive care facility in the XL, um, we brought forward a lot of that programme by, by about six months so whereas we had intended October, November to be a sort of a staging point, we achieved that by about the middle of March. And so that meant that, you know, all the many, many people and um, suppliers across the system worked together. And I think that's a feature of the way we're working differently is that we're much more um, prepared to work together. But very often, um, the organisational constructs of services means that there's something I would call as a, a, a um, characterizes collective action dilemmas that a decision we make for our organization may not be the one we might want to make for the system we work in but I've seen that people have been much more prepared to act together to make those decisions and so speed up some of this adoption. Similarly I think with um, um, uh, primary care and secondary care um, sort of digitization of, um, of uh, ambulatory care so you get those virtual um, um, consultations that has moved much more quickly all those plans were in place you know people were looking at those already so what we've done is we is the human side that's changed I think more than the technology side and the human side has meant to cope now with this problem we need to move forward um, so I, th I think that becomes really important because it does mean that um, we are aligning ourselves much more effectively to what we need to achieve as a system. Um, but I think there's a long way to go. I think we're only just scratching the surface and there are some problems we're generating as well. So I would say largely primary care and secondary care have digitized those channels separately. And actually the way we want to see care being taken forward is that that's uh, one uh, mechanism not multiple, multiple different mechanisms. And so, you, you know, as a patient, it may be important that your GP and your hospital consultants are available on the same platform, maybe at the same time, maybe not. Um, so I think, you know, um, we, we sort of need to overcome that. And then we get down to this question of, well, how do those platforms work together? Do we have to buy one thing nationally or do we have to get them to interoperate? And again, I think interoperability is a critical question I wouldn't underestimate the amount of work that's been done there. A lot has been done. We are much better than we were five years ago. Um, but really, um, um, it, it's about the will people have to make compromises to make the decisions going forward. And I include suppliers, the public, patients, and uh, healthcare professionals and organisations. We've got to reach these decisions together. And that's the really big lesson, I think, for me coming out of this. We have to act together in a much more effective way than we have been doing. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Luke. I think that's been a really interesting observation that we've found as well as a, as a cancer specialist, even at the most basic level, you know, multidisciplinary 
conversations and now um, you know need to branch out to include families, carers, the GP, the specialists, and how best you facilitate that um, in this environment has become a really important question for us. So, um, yeah, I'd share that for you. Um, Karen, over to you. Thank you. Um, uh, I think I'm going to come at this uh, in terms of the integration agenda, um, because I think we all aspire to an integrated care system, don't we? We all aspire to joined up care with the right flow of the right information between uh, the services that need to see that in order to provide and deliver not only better care, better joined up care, but also to avoid duplication. And we see, you know, waste and inefficiencies. And um, I, one, one thing that, that, that I heard in New Zealand was that this concept about the one thing that we all import, that know that is important and the one thing that is that means the same to everyone is this concept of time. So, you know, anything that we can do to, to ensure that we're not uh, wasting time, that we are using the resources in the best possible way to give us the very best um, patient care is really important. So I, so I think we have um, a huge opportunity to, to really motor on this integration um, agenda by using um, a fully integrated electronic health record. I mean, you know, we have siloed systems, siloed ways of working, siloed hospitals, uh, systems that don't talk to each other in the same system. Um, we have general practice um, records that are highly digitized, but um, have the opportunity to, to, to share now between, uh, between, obviously with the right constructs in, in place between practices, but also um, to be able to evolve these um, electronic health records, which give a vertical um, view of patients, of the patient's records, and it's paramount for safety. It's paramount for productivity and for really good planning care. So, um, you know, in terms of if we, if we are, if, if we again go back to the principle about how do we deliver care, particularly in this next 12 to 24 months where we are going to have to work differently, um, and we are going to have to plan care. There are, there are a number of principles around how do we achieve that unless we have got really good integrated healthcare records, number one. And how do we have the right conversations in a multidisciplinary um, framework without knowing um, how, to, how to do that across, say, primary and secondary care, but also increasingly um, thinking about how we do that without knowing what social care and data tells us as well. It's really important. And that does require a different culture. And I think one of the things that I've seen in the, in the last few weeks is um, a, a real interest now to try and break the divide between primary and secondary care, because um, we have to do things differently. We have to do things remotely. We are you know, increasingly not just consulting with patients, uh, with video and, and telephone and so on, but um, we are now increasingly talking to our colleagues across primary and secondary care. And that actually is something that we must never let go of. We are taking care of the same patients. They are both of our responsibilities um, and we are as invested as each other across the, across the different sectors. And, we, and that for me, that kind of cultural change around um, that, that that ability to be able to connect has, has been really important and, and brilliant to see. And then the second um, thing that I want to talk about is really a population health management approach. We talked about data. 
um, a, a population health management approach enables us to make intelligent decisions about the data that we are looking at. It enables us to target gaps, it enables us to cohort patients, it enables us to design not just care models, but also a different workforce that might be needed um, to look after patients in a different way. So it's a very empowering um, ability to use the data in a different way and one that we should be really thinking about, particularly as we try and personalise care um, for patients in a different way. So, so PHM approach is, is really important that we, uh, that we again, understand the data and make the decisions based, based on that. And then the, the, the last thing I'm going to say is, and it's really a question to us all within the NHS, and it's about the infrastructure. And I wonder whether, uh, and it's a very open question, whether we as a health service have invested what we should have done in terms of IT and, and uh, infrastructure just to do the basics right to be able to join up the way that we work. Um, and I look at uh, different industries and see the investment that has been made uh, in that infrastructure uh, in other areas. And I think we should look very hard at ourselves and, and ask ourselves whether we have invested as we should have done in being able to get the basic right. Thanks, Karen. Um, Natalie or Aidan, was there anything you wanted to add before we, we move across to talk more about the patient at the centre? Uh, well, I suppose this is this is probably a, a linking point in a sense for me, which is, you know, I think that it, it is both Karen and Luke have, have alluded to that there have been enormous strides in trying to think more in this integrated way and pull pull data across from multiple sources and have that much more comprehensive view of data. Um, and one of the things that often crops up when we do attitudes research and, and engagement is people say, look, all of these, you know, secondary uses of data, so using data to improve care and services through research and planning, they say, look, that all sounds well and good and, and, and so on, and I have some concerns, but you know, that, that sounds fine. But I still cannot get hold of my own information, and I still keep having to repeat myself every time I see, see a new clinician. And if patients don't have access to that information themselves why should anyone else and that's a fair criticism right that is an absolutely legitimate um legitimate concern and of course you know it's been policy for a very long time that patients should have access to their own records but in some places it's happened in many places it hasn't and there are various reasons for that everything from you know capacity and resource concerns about liability safeguarding uh, and so on but I really think that in the current circumstances with all the progress that's been made around integration if we're really serious about putting patients at the heart of all this then giving them access to their own information feels like an absolute starting point. Lisa. Adrian, anything, anything you'd like to add to that as well? Sorry, Luke, yeah. I'll come back to you as well. Yeah, I think I think um, I just wanted to pick up on this point kind of around um, inclusion, exclusion and, and, and health inequalities. I think one of the um, really striking things that um, particularly with with um, COVID-19, but kind of generally is the intersections between kind of technical or, or, or digital inequalities and social and health inequalities have kind of never been more stark than they are now. And that's not just in terms of who may or may not have access to say a mobile phone to be able to do a digital consultation. We think that things like smartphones are pretty ubiquitous and everyone has them, but not everyone does. Not everyone um, can use a smartphone and, and often the people that can't get access to those kinds of digital tools are often sometimes the people that might be more at risk either from direct impacts of things like coronavirus because perhaps they're um you know 
it's it's stereotyping to say that older people don't have the same access to digital tools, but there is some you know suggestion that they might not have the same access. But also, I think in terms of the indirect impact, so the kind of economic impact, the things like living in a dense urban area um, where you know you can't self-isolate quite so easily, and the digital tools that help you do that or help you access healthcare services you might not have access to. So, I think one of the challenging things is that when we're thinking about how um, we can access patients and, and, and patients can access healthcare in fantastic new ways. For the most part, yes, that is true, but there are those that might be excluded and we have to be really, really careful to make sure that they're not excluded because I think right now there's a risk that those who are excluded are those who are also most at risk of the severest impacts um, from, from the current pandemic. Thanks, Aidan. Uh, Luke, did you want to add anything before we move on? Uh, I just, I think there's a link between what Karen said, Natalie said, and Aidan, which is around um, doing the basics well and funding it over a sufficient period of time at a sufficient value so that we can get a minimum level of access available across the whole of our health and care system. You know, we tend to run this in political cycles. We tend to nick the money for something else. And, you know, while it may be controversial to say it, I think it's true when you look at the last, you know, 20 or 30 years that we've never really been able to guarantee for a five-year period a level of investment that allows that minimum set of standards to be in place. And I guess that's a question to our, you know, um, senior leaders and political masters that we need that sort of guarantee. And that will be even more difficult, I think, going forward now when we're entering, you know, a, a deep recession over a long period of time potentially and when we're going to have to recover the additional costs to the economy of COVID um, over an even longer period of time. So I'm more worried about this sort of issue than I was before and it does link to equity of access you know and social capital. It does link to um, people having access to their own data and it does link to individual um, clinicians and others being able to do their job properly I think it's, you know there's a big link in all of that for me thank you Lisa thanks Luke no very, really important point and um, so um, moving across I think we'll, we'll move to you to yourself Aidan so I'll pick up a couple of points that have come up in the Q&A because I suspect that you and Natalie will cover these as we talk about um, the considerations we need to put in you know think about in terms of um, patients ownership um, of this data the governance of it and the ethical use of it going forward so um, there was a, a question about the point around data, not, or not all data being neutral, which Natalie, you might want to pick up on. Um, Aidan, there was one that came through to you and you might pick up on as you just um, talked to us now around the recent, you, you mentioned research and, and something about the kind of research that you've, you've been involved in and you've seen um, that, get, that informs you know, the, the positions that we need to take. So over to you, I shall uh, stop talking and let you carry on. Thanks. No, I, I think just on that first point around ownership is one of the one of the trickiest things when we talk about data and whether that's health data or any kinds of data is this question of ownership. Um, and often there is a tendency, a really natural tendency to think, well, this data is about me, therefore it's mine. Um, and it's not often as simple as that because data about me is collected in, in, in all kinds of places um, and kind of saying, well, do I own that? is sometimes tricky if I don't own the server that it sits upon, for example, whether that's an NHS server or, you know, it's my Facebook data, for example. But rather what is more important to talk about is rights. That data is about me, therefore I have certain rights over it. And I think when it comes to our patient data, that's what we really need to think about is patients have a right um, to know 
about the data that is held on them. They have a right to, to certain things, whether it's accessing that data, whether it's challenging that data, often it's wrong. Um, you know, sometimes if you are someone like me who's perhaps moved around quite a lot, your address doesn't always match up on your medical records or your name doesn't always match up on your medical records if your name is sometimes spelt with an E rather than with an A. And it's just little tiny things like that that um, we need to ensure that patients have the, the, the rights over seeing what data is held about them challenging, questioning, having access to, understanding that data as well, because sometimes it's held in ways which are really um, tricky to engage with if you're not medically trained, um, as, as, as I certainly am not, as, as, as many people aren't. Um, so I think that's a really important thing. And then when it comes to research, I think um, one of the really interesting things, and so I think um, research is kind of around health research, doing research about health using all kinds of data collected about us. And I think one of the really interesting things when you engage with patients and the public around the use of health data for things like research is often when people are at first perhaps um, reluctant to have their health data used for research, when you explore the benefits that that can bring to society people can see that oh actually you know if we had access to vast volumes of nhs medical records we could understand better the, the interactions between catching covid and likely um you know the factors that are more likely to cause um more severe impacts from that um but then the question always comes back to okay great so we can do research with the state and that's helpful but we have to make sure it's done responsibly it's done ethically the right checks and balances are in place the right governance and oversight are in place and again those aspects around um, governance oversight they're not just decisions that should be made by ethics professionals somewhere far away people and patients sh should be able to be involved in decisions about what is okay what is fair when it comes to who can do research on that data um, you know people might be more comfortable with university-based researchers having access to certain types of health data versus say pharmaceutical researchers having access to certain types of data and it's not it's not comes it doesn't come down to well what is right or wrong who should or shouldn't get access it comes down to if this data is about patients health and they have rights to how that data is over how that data is used then there should be some right to having a say as well about who does or doesn't get to access that data for research purposes so it's kind of quite um there are all different aspects which feed into how people might perceive this and feel about this, but I think it comes back to if data is about someone, there are certain rights that those individuals should have about that. Thanks, Aidan. That's really helpful. Natalie. Thanks. So I'm going to take possibly the, I wouldn't say counter point view, but, you know, always, always good to generate a bit of a, a bit of friction, which is we need to acknowledge the limitations to our rights. So um, the fact is information is collected about us as part of being able to deliver health and care. And it may well be that there are some things I would rather weren't shared that are in my health record. But if I want to be part of a functioning public health system where we have enough data to be able to commission the right services, to be able to plan, uh, to be able to manage a public health crisis, sometimes I'm not going to be able to have a say over how that data is used and for what purposes and who gets hold of it. And that includes, for example, commercial involvement. The fact is a lot of people are sensitive to the idea of companies accessing and using uh, data from health records but that is actually pretty embedded in our health system every time you go to a GP and log in like that is a third party provider um, and I think we haven't been honest enough for a very long time with patients and the public about the fact that the NHS is not a single monolithic entity that there are thousands of organizations that comprise it and that work with it third party third, third party partners 
are managing, are using, are analyzing data all the time that comes from our health records. And we can't, we, we can't set up a public discussion or, or dialogue on the premise that you have ultimate freedom of choice over individual bits of your health record, this bit of data or not that bit of data, or I don't mind this kind of organizational person accessing it, but not that. You cannot run a health system that way. Um, and so I think much as I completely agree with Aidan that as far as possible, we need to ensure that people have a have rights, but also are aware of their rights. Uh, we need to be really clear on what the limitations to those might be sometimes. And that certainly comes through in the context of the pandemic, you know, with the, with the revision to the COPE regulations, confidential patient information is being shared and used in ways that would normally trigger the common law duty of confidentiality. And it's been set aside for the purposes of the pandemic because there is a bigger societal public health interest in this information being used. There is a limit to your rights as a patient over that data at this point. Um, so I think it's just really important to be kind of to be clear cut about this and we should we should be more honest and we should give people more credit to be able to engage in some of these difficult conversations. But part of the reason that we focus on the idea of trustworthiness rather than saying you need to have public trust in how this data is used is that you need to create and set up systems that people have good reason to have confidence in without necessarily needing to be able to navigate the complexities of it all themselves. It shouldn't require an awful lot of work and labour on the part of a patient to know what, how their patient record is structured and where it is and, and, and what, their, what their potential rights and choices are. Um, so it feels like sometimes when we talk about empowerment for patients, we're actually putting an awful lot of emphasis and weight on them to do the work, to understand the system and to be able to navigate it in all its complexities. I mean, I for one cannot fathom half of the acronyms in the use in the NHS. I can't imagine what it's like for someone who isn't involved in this world every single day. So much as I think... Um, increasing our capacity to engage with and talk to and be open with patients about what's happening to their data. We also don't want to put so much weight and burden on them in terms of their responsibility that they have to navigate an unbelievable complexity to the extent that, you know, you have to read the, realistically, you'd have to read the terms and conditions of every app you sign up to. You know, it, it, we can't put that much um, weight on people and, and work for them to have to do in order to be safe, in order to feel that their data and, and um, information that's collected about them is being protected and managed in the right way. So we should focus on the systemic uh, aspects as well and ensure they they are as trustworthy as possible thanks Nestle. you've you've almost perfect and, and that that's re really um great roundup of, of of thoughts there and i've wanted to move us on to some time for some questions we've had a lot of questions actually so i'm going to try and group some areas for discussion but you've incredibly neatly um, led on to one that's uh, an area that's raised a lot of questions so some something about the downside of pace so obviously we've exactly as you've described we've relaxed um ig regulations we've moved at speed um, so there's the question around how we can be sure that data is being used for the right reasons, which we've touched upon. But going back to your point just now, Natalie, and, and perhaps something for, for Luke and Karen with their, their broad system perspective. Um, what do we do about that? How do we go forward now to create that um, safe integrated system? Who owns that data? How do we regulate it? And what are people's thoughts on the next steps now? We've, we've done the pace bit. What is it we now need to do to create that safe um, and valuable integrated system? Um, so perhaps, um, Luke, I see you've come off mute. So should we start with you? Thanks. Um, thanks, Lisa. That's very kind. It's a I big question. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I could answer any one of those points, I would feel happy, but I'm not sure I can answer <laughs> any of them, really. No, no, that's not true. I, so for me, this, this focuses on how we organise ourselves. You know, I started my 
uh, brief at this meeting talking about the changes we've made to the way we've organized ourselves. And I think we've got to be able to consolidate some of that um, agility in the way we organize ourselves. But we've got to be, um, I think we've got to change a little bit to bring more of the public into that decision-making quickly as well and get their insights um, to inform us what might be acceptable and what might be not, not be acceptable. And you know, we don't do that very well, to be honest. We often as professionals or people trying to s sort of run the services, assume we know. And actually that quite a lot of the time is wrong. Uh, we, we can assume it, you know, in a good way or a bad way, depending on our perspective. Uh, one of the insights, um, you know, from the work we've done in London is that some, um, some practice was to say, well, I don't think my patients would like their data shared for this purpose. Therefore, I am not allowing this data to be shared on their behalf for this purpose. When we spoke to Londoners, Londoners pretty overwhelmingly said, no, we think you should share it. In fact, we expect that you do it because it's in our benefit directly and indirectly. And that was very helpful because we can go back now to those professionals and say, well, stop taking an assumed position. Here's some evidence behind the position. So I think for me, it does go back to, to that, you know, how we organize ourselves. Let's not lose the agility, but let's get proper reflective practice with our public into that mechanism. I don't quite know what the answer to that is, but I do think we will fail um, to do what's expected of us if we don't do that going forward. I, I absolutely echo that and, um, and was um, you know, lucky enough to sit on, in on some of those sessions. And I think to, back to an earlier point, and, and it'd be interesting, Karen, to get your view. Um, one, of the, one of the sort of observations I noticed, Luke, at some of those sessions that I sat in on were, were that, fit, that sense that the NHS brand is, is a strong and trustworthy brand. And how do we actually bring that same sense into broader areas such as social care, um, community, and then and to Aidan's earlier point, those um, non-NHS um, elements of, of the system that we need to bring in and become a trustworthy I mean, source. Is, so, I think that's, that's true, Lisa. There's a, there's, there are enormous paradoxes in all of that. Um, mm. Most surveys would say that the public trust the NHS and most surveys would say that public don't trust social media companies to, you know, to, to have their data. Yet all of us probably have several social media accounts that we're using and some of our data is shared with them. So in our heads, somehow we manage that paradox mm. and it depends on the setting um, and the purpose and um, the, the level of trust. I keep, I think trust and trustworthiness, as Natalie has emphasised, becomes really critical and our, all our decisions have got to be in the direction of supporting that interface. Thanks, Luke. Karen? Yeah, shall I, shall I come in that? So, so I really um, agree with you, um, Luke. I think we need to be really clear about the questions that we're asking when we're thinking about what the data that we're looking at and, and of course, which sectors. Uh, so, you know, th there's got to be a reason for, for looking for those answers. You've got to, so you've got to be really clear on the questions. Uh, we have a lot of experts within each organisation within our, our systems and, and that should provide us with the check and challenge around and we should, we should be uh, very careful to maintain that, that, that probity and, 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 and make sure that we maintain that high trust because we, don't, we, we absolutely don't want to lose that. But we're, there is, uh, you know, we need to be really sure that we um, constructively challenge each other on the reasons for, for any of the pieces of work that we're doing. Uh, the, the 
the third thing I'd like to say is that having the patient in the room to challenge um, clinicians and, and, and managers and, and experts in the field is really important. Um, and some of, the, some of the perceptions that people have often are just washed away when patients get in the room and, and tell you their expectations. So they're a very powerful, very important um, part of the co-design piece in any of this. And, and just a, a personal reflection, um, a few years ago, I, I was involved in a piece of work where we were um, uh, trying to uh, improve an integrated care approach around um, a, a general practice population, looking at how we were able to share um, some uh, records with an urgent, our local urgent treatment centre and our community um, staff. And, you know, we went through a whole period of consultation with patients and they were just incredulous, actually, that we weren't already doing it for their for their patient safety because they understood you know that the pitfalls are, and the gigantic you know holes in the pavement that you could fall through if you didn't have access to the right to the right data and so that that was incredibly helpful and i remember you know opening up and um uh, you know making we, we there was obviously this period of consultation then and then then agreeing the data sharing um with of course all the right ig um in place uh, and uh, not having one single um person come back to me and, and, and challenge it because it had been done safely. There was the reason, there, there were the right reasons, the, the right questions, the right conversations, the right reasons had been stated, patients were in the room expected it. Um, and it was in, and, and that's the kind of, you know, it is a, it is a way of working, but, but you, and you have to be absolutely, um, you know, clear on, on your processes around that. Thanks, Karen. And um, I probably turn to Natalie and Aidan. An interesting comment just popped up in the Q&A that really feeds exactly off everything we've just been saying. So with this multitude of providers, suppliers, and different sources of information, it, it, are, we, are we approaching the point where we need some form of social contract around this? And how, and how do we discuss that? And, and what do we think about that? I think we already do have a social contract. I'm just not sure if we call it that. So uh, the term social contract is not something that most people would recognise, but the fact is we we pay taxes and contribute to pooled resources, and you get you may get something out of that, and you may not always get something out of that. Some people get more than others. Uh, that is essentially a social contract. The fact we have a national health service is a form of social contract. So we just I just think in terms of kind of broader like public uh, understanding of that, and that is not a term that is that, that makes sense. But intuitively, people get it. Study after study has shown that people intuitively get that sense of you contribute something, you get something in return, you share risk. Other people might get more benefits than you, but that's part and parcel of being in society. Genomics England did a really good study on this um, last year, uh, exploring kind of the social contract for genetic and genomic research. Um, so I think, you know, there is a very strong sense of that solidarity, altruism um, that we have in this country, particularly around the National Health Service. I think that the broader questions are, uh, is that shifting and is it changing and is more being expected of us as a result of a the pandemic but also advances in data data driven technology and so on is more being expected of us uh, in terms of what we're willing to um, 
allowed to happen and what's acceptable um, for, for broader public benefit. Big question around what counts as public benefit. And actually, um, we're doing some research with National Data Guardian and ScienceWise that's just kicking off at the moment, exploring how do you make an assessment of public benefit when you're um, thinking about you know, doing a, a data, data, data initiative or, or project? How do you actually assess in practice? Is this thing in the, for public benefit or not? Um, so I, I kind of think we're, we broadly have the social infrastructure for that conversation and for maybe exploring whether and how um, the pandemic in particular has shifted that. I mean, we've all accepted limitations. Well, most of us have accepted limitations to our rights and freedoms over the last few months um, for, the sake, for the sake of broader public good. And I, it feels like it's very much part of that, that narrative. So I don't necessarily think we need something new. It may well be, however, that our balance of risks and benefits and trade-offs and what we're willing to accept might have shifted in light of the pandemic. And that, for me, is all the more reason to do more uh, engagement, particularly as we're thinking longer term um, about you know, data infrastructures, norms and processes that might be being set up now. Thanks, Natalie. Great. Um, Aidan, did you want to add? Well, I was just going to add one brief thing. I completely uh, agree with Natalie's points there. And I think um, perhaps maybe pulling on some other points that have come up as well and other questions that have come up as well. I think one of the things we have to be really conscious of is that um, there is going to be a legacy of the things that come into play right now. So the pandemic has kind of opened a window for rapid change, rapid innovation. Um, and I think the question is, what does that look like in 12, 24, 36 months time and beyond? Um, and we have to remember that these extreme circumstances hopefully will not be forever. And we have to acknowledge that then therefore there needs to be some, in some scenarios, there may need to be some sort of kind of sunset clauses or limitations on the things which we would accept right now because of the extreme circumstances, but that we might be less comfortable with um, or might want to do differently in kind of normal times. So I think there's that question of there will be a legacy of the things that happen now and we have to be very conscious of that as we're doing it. Thanks, Aidan. Um, I've just noticed pop we've had so many questions coming through, so I'm trying to multi multitask and pick those up. But, um, I've just been asked by Will if I can address the one that had the most upvotes. So I frantically scored back through. Um, and that was a question asking um, how we learn the lessons from previous attempts to have a, an a single integrated system. So how do we avoid, um, as the question says, you know, spending billions on a single system? Now, my personal point of view on that, and I'll turn to Luke and, and Karen on this one, for more of the detail is that I don't think that's what we're trying to do now um, in terms of a, a single entity. Um, but I'd welcome, I'd welcome Luke and Karen's comments on that one. Hi, it's Luke here. Um, I suppose a system is a collection of parts which work together for specific purposes. At least that's one way of defining it. And I would say if the unit of organization now in the health service is the integrated care system and the focus on the middle word care is really critical, how do those organizations in a geographic locality work together? They, will have a, they should have a range of strategies about how they um, connect their systems and use their data safely um, to deliver that. Some will say maybe we do need one system, computer system, to do that with. Others will say we will work with what we've got and over time we'll change it. Um, and even then, the patients and care is required in locations outside of that so so we have to think of those boundary issues so i don't i don't think of it as one big system um, but i do think of it as a collection of parts that have to work together 
And I don't think it's a technology question. I think it's a human behavioral question and about how we can resolve, you know, the, the collective um, um, action dilemma that we all have to make choices where we give up something. So we get bigger benefit for the group we're working in rather than always focus on the benefit for me and my organization as being the primary goal. Um, so, you know, I think that it's that human behavioral thing that for me is critical in all of this. Uh, and that's what I try and focus on when I'm trying to have these sorts of discussions at scale in systems across London. Thanks, Luke. Karen? Yes, and, uh, and I think um, kind of much the same, really, in terms of if you wait for a single national solution, I suspect we might wait um, a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, history has not been great in terms of what, what the, the achievements in those areas. So uh, I, I think, though, that there are huge opportunities um, for local systems to start um, to, to start somewhere, anywhere, but start joining up their, their records. And um, I think it is, it is within all of our gifts to start thinking about how we design that at the best possible value. Um, thinking through collectively the best strategies to achieve that and that's not all about spending a whole heap of money it is also about doing the best with what we can um, in, in terms of the technology and, and the systems that we already have available to us um, and I can't think that intraoperable uh, systems can't be formed going forward um, with the clever uh, technology and I'm uh, you know, and, I, and I'm not in that camp at all. That's not my field at all. But I can't believe that we can't do better with what we have, uh, with a single common view about what we want that system to do, be it a, a care record, or, or be it uh, a, an ability to form an intelligent working programme that allows us to look at the data of our local populations. Um, but what that mustn't do is just be yet another silo. So it, there needs to be a view that you know, systems that are next to each other must also be able to uh, make sure that there is some uh, ability to look at, at populations so we don't end up with just great big, other great big cracks that we can fall through. So, uh, but we definitely need to have a very common and clear view on that. And, and, and I think that, that there is the possibility to, to um, design and build and use the, um, you know, the resource, there's loads of talent within the NHS itself to be able to build that and and build and spread and, and spread with pride and, and, and make that something that, that is available to others. So it's not necessarily about spending huge amounts of money. It's also using the huge talent that exists within the NHS uh, in our analysts and, and within our technicians. Thanks, Karen. Um, excellent. I mean, I think we could probably continue this conversation for an incredibly long time. Um, it's a great, great set of topics and, and a really um, good broad range of experience and knowledge to discuss it. So apologies for not getting to every single question. I've tried to take us through the, the broad sort of sense of, of what people are asking. And um, what I wanted to really do was just take the last couple of minutes, A, to say a huge thanks to our panelists. Um, really, really fascinating conversation. And I'm sure one that will be picked up outside of the conversation as well. But before I hand back, back to Emma, I just wanted to give each of you, you know, 30 seconds to a minute, just to anything you'd like to sum up that you think we might not have covered or you'd like to leave us with. Um, so if I could just start with Aidan. First, with the summary is always the, the tricky someone sometimes. <laughs> but I, I, th I think it's been a really um, great conversation. I've been very glad to be a part of it. I think um, what I'll try and do is link what I said at the start around, um, you know, the 
increasing kind of what, how, why, and when in terms of the data that we collect and use is a rapidly kind of changing, growing category. And I think what the conversation has highlighted, at least for me, is what that means for things like transparency, interoperability, trust, accountability. And, um, and, and on Natalie's point about rights, I completely agree. I think it's about changing the way we think about the rights that, that we may or may not have around this data about us. Um, so I, I think we're yet to see exactly how this is all going to play out. We're really in the middle of it. And I think um, we can hopefully continue to steer it in the right way. Fantastic. Thanks, Aidan. Um, Natalie, your, your thoughts? Thanks. Thanks very much. Really, really stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. I guess one thing that this is leaving me with is the sense that um, quite often when we're talking about kind of data and data use for patients and the public and kind of actually with healthcare professionals a lot of the time because they're often the most skeptical um, it's very much a risk narrative it's a how are we mitigating risk how are we stopping x from happening how are we preventing breaches or bad things from happening how are we you know stopping the big bad tech uh, getting hold of things and actually one thing that's really coming through is the astonishing and phenomenal benefits and good things that are coming out of being able to pull together and integrate and manage and use data both for individual care and for service planning and for research and actually we can probably make more of that and given that a lot of the issues that appear to be kind of black barriers and blockers are cultural they're about risk aversion they're about people being afraid of doing the wrong thing if we can actually use public and patient involvement and engagement, you know, just as Karen had this beautiful example, when you, when you do that, when you get people in the room, you can actually do really great things and you can probably do more than you thought you could because you've actually gone and asked people and explored their views. I think perhaps the context of the pandemic might provide us with an opportunity to actually start talking a little bit more openly and positively about the potential of using data in all sorts of ways to really improve um, care for individuals, but also for services and for research as well so I think the key thing I'm taking from it is, is the more positive uh, narrative we can generate really around the fantastic and life-saving frankly benefits of being able to use data better. Thanks Natalie. Luke, um, closing thoughts from you? Yeah so you know I'm very positive about all of this agenda and it's great to have all the challenges I think we need those to help us um, develop and self-correct as we go on. Um, the bigger framework I try and operate within is something I would I would refer to as a learning health and care system, which is that, you know, we've got to, we've got to do things um, and test them with our public, you know, with the professionals, and then we've got to correct and redo it. And that's, that will go on forever. Um, the emphasis I would like to bring is that we need to bring the public in a much more open way into that system. And it needs to become a normal part of the way we operate as, as people within the service. Um, and, and that for me is the, is the big learning. If we can do that, then I think we will be trusted more and we will trust the public view more. And it's that trust relationship upon which we depend so much that is critical in how successful we are going forward. Thanks, Luke. And Karen, um, last but by no means least. Thank you. So just finally, um, Continuing to put the patient first, our clinical models are going to change. They have to change. Um, and that's going to be difficult for patients and clinicians alike. Um, but let's make sure that whatever we change drives it in this truly integrated way so that we've got, we make the best of the, the opportunities in front of us. Let's not forget the enormous amount of um, changing uh, culture that's going to be needed 
to be able to really embed those processes, um, both for the wider population, but also for, for the delivery of, of health and care. Um, but we need to do that in a really open and transparent way and, and have the conversation up front. Uh, and then just finally, um, just something that I said earlier, which was make sure that we use the, da the data intelligently to make the right decisions for the population going forward. Thank you. Thanks, Karen. And, and again, thanks to everybody. It's been, I think it's been a really, really fascinating discussion. Um, I'm pleased to say a lot of the comments coming through are, we'd like to have continued this. Um, and how do we do that? So I'm, I'm going to um, be cheeky and hand that back to Emma as a potential good problem to have. Um, and thanks for hosting us. Emma, do you want to close us out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, really lovely Q&A and, and we'll be covering more on patient data and where it will sit within the change management piece going forward and, and over the upcoming months. Um, but for now, I just want to say a big thank you to all of our speakers today and um, again for taking that time out to prep and deliver this much needed discussion. Um, so this and upcoming talks will be available on the HEP podcast, uh, which is on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Um, if you click the link in the thank you email to register your interest, um, then we'll be able to keep you up to date with the latest in digital health developments for us at HEP and any upcoming webinars that you might be interested in. Um, but for now, thank you everyone and, and we'll see you next time. Thanks very much. Bye. Thank you for listening. Sign up to our podcast for the latest digital health developments or visit hetshow.co.uk for the latest info on the HET Live event, as well as news and updates from the best in health tech.